0: Law Talk Radio. Hello, this is Nick Augustine and I'm your host on this episode of Law Talk Radio, brought to you by ProServe Public Relations. Our show covers legal news and information and topics that matter to our listeners. Law Talk Radio airs live on Tuesdays with variable show times in the afternoons. If you click the like button on our Law Talk Radio Facebook page, you'll see feeds advertising our weekly shows. Simply search for Law Talk Radio in the Facebook search tab for more information. Today's show is Civil Liberties Examined Post-9-11 with Donna Adler. This is part six of our show in at least uh, a ten-series show. Uh, Chicago's civil rights attorney Sh- Donna Adler walks us through the status of civil liberties in the U.S. following September 11, 2001. This is, again, the sixth show in uh, at least ten-part series examining everything up through and including the 9-11 Commission report. Having practiced law for over 25 years, Chicago attorney Donna Adler has built her career incorporating education and service to local professional and business communities. Donna Adler's outreach includes advising on legal issues in several areas, including without limitation, general and civil and commercial litigation, criminal defense and administrative law. And Donna Adler's office is located in DuPage County in Oakbrook Terrace, Illinois. Her website is www.donnam.com. AdlerLawLLC.com. We want to welcome callers this afternoon. If you have any questions or comments, you are welcome to dial in. 917-889-9732 is the number, uh, number, and then you can press option 1 to be placed in the caller queue. That telephone number, again, is 917-889-9732. By way of short disclaimer, this is a general information program, and the advice shared on our show does not constitute legal advice. Communications with attorneys on their shows do not give rise to attorney-client relationships. ProServe Public Relations does not necessarily endorse all of the opinions expressed by guests. Finally, all callers are confidential and rights to this broadcast are reserved. With regard to upcoming events that we broadcast on our shows, if you have an upcoming event you would like to promote, please let us know. Beginning in January of 2012, we are selling episode sponsorships, and you can take advantage of this opportunity to support our programming and create awareness of your organization and events. ProServe Public Relations is a full-service business development PR firm focused on law, finance, and small business success. We offer consulting and service in content development, event management, and media relations. Please visit our website for more information at proservepr.com. That's P-R-O-S-E-R-V-E-P-R.com. Now, as for subject matter for today's show, again, this is Episode 6 in a series of at least 10 shows devoted to the impact on civil liberties of laws passed since 9-11 2001 to enhance national security. During this series, Attorney Donna M. Adler leads us chronologically from the events of September 11th and through the 9-11 Commission Report and several major pieces of legislation such as Homeland Security Act, Patriot Act, Patriot II, Military Commissions Act, and a number of laws directed to enhancing that national capacity to fight terrorism. Today, we continue a discussion we started last time in number episode 5 on what the U.S. knew about al-Qaeda as it was becoming prominent and what we tried to do about it, uh, as well failures of intergovernmental cooperation concerning the knowledge we had that contributed to our vulnerability on 9-11, and as well the recommendations that the 9-11 Commission Report made in light of the Commission's finding and a discussing discussion of that legislation. So that is a, a general roadmap of where we have been in where we're going, so we're, again, continuing uh, off from, from last time. So uh, w- welcome, Donna Adler.
1: Nick, thank you. It's always a pleasure to be on the show. I do want to clarify a few things. First of all, sure. we always get the website wrong, but that's all right. It's um well, I'm getting it wrong now. Okay, I'm .com <laughs> or something. Okay, so it's, it's up there. But I should just say. Donna specify M. That
0: Adler. Me. Okay, all right.
1: Donna M. Adler, Adler Law. Okay, so that's what it is. You said you The double Adler. Right, exactly. Adler Law LLC. So it's www.donnamadler, com. All right. All right. Also, as far as subject matter today, um, I'm glad you said it's going to be at least a 10 part series because we have a lot of legislation to get through that we haven't even begun, and our next show will be the 9 11 Commission Report Recommendations. In this show, we are simply finishing up. Um, Speaking about the level of awareness our government had of al-Qaeda as a threat, we had in previous shows spoke about um, how al-Qaeda rose to prominence, so that's what we've had. We're finishing our discussion of um, how we became aware of al-Qaeda as a threat to the U.S. and what our government did about it, and then also um, what we're going to get into is how our government agencies were organized or not effectively to deal with um, the new kind of terrorist threat we found um, leading up to 9/11 after the Cold War. So, picking up with what we knew when, just a couple things I want to I want to stress. We left off in 1998. Uh, 1998, I believe, at the end of the last show um, regarding the U.S.'s efforts to track Osama bin Laden once they became aware that he was involved with um, terrorist financing. Um, In 1998, 1997, the Saudis, about November of 1998, the Saudis wouldn't give the United States direct access um, to important Al Qaeda financial um, officials, such as Madani al Tayyib. The U.S. did not gain access um, to that person even after um, Al Gore requested it from Crown Prince Abdullah. And we may have mentioned that in a previous show. But the um, National Security Center staff led a working group on terrorist finances um, that led a group on on terrorist finances asked the CIA to push again for access to Taib in late 1998 to see if it was possible to elaborate further on the ties between bin Laden and some prominent individuals in in Saudi Arabia, um, especially in the bin Laden family. And the result was that um there were two National Security Center led interagency trips to the Persian Gulf states in nineteen ninety nine and two thousand. Um as a result of those trips our government learned um with the Saudi help that Bin Laden was not financing activity through his inheritance. Um there was no progress on finances, um after for you know, for four years after the existence of um Four years after the existence of the CIA's BL, um, you know, bin Laden unit. So the CIA had established a bin Laden unit and made no progress for four years on terrorist financing um, after that because of the lack of cooperation we were getting there. Now, the Department of State, in the meantime, um, so we had the CIA working on one front. The Department of State, countered as an advisor, it was pushing uh, for Secretary of State Albright at the time to designate um, Pakistan um, as a state sponsor for terrorism. However, there was some resistance on that front um, from the Department of State South Asia B- Bureau uh, because um, that department felt that it would damage our, our relations with Pakistan in view of the May 1998 nuclear tests in both Pakistan and um, in India. Secretary Albright, on August fifth, nineteen 1998, rejected a recommendation of designating um, Pakistan um, as a terrorist, as a ter- state-sponsored terrorist, terrorism, but... Um, and, and was afraid that that doing so would eliminate any possible influence that we had over them. In October of nineteen ninety eight, the um, National Security Center counterterrorism official um, noted that Pakistan's pro Taliban militant you know, military intelligence service had been training um, Kashmiri jihadists in one of the camps that had been hit by uh, U.S. marshals in one of our strikes, um, U.S. missiles, leading to um, um, leading to the death of some Pakistanis. The Saudi government um, was pressing Sharif with regard to the Taliban and bin Laden by October of 1998. President Clinton invited Sharif to Washington, where they talked mostly about India, but also discussed bin Laden. After he went home, Clinton called Sharif, and Sharif promised um, to um, talk to uh, the Taliban, Mullah Omar, and... um, he was going to try to help us get um, information information about um, bin Laden and also to get um, Mullah Omar to hand him over. Michael Sheen, in December 1998, became the counterterrorism coordinator um, on the National Security Center staff. Um, and he'd been in charge of um, special forces uh, for some time. In... December of 1998, the CIA included an article in the presidential daily brief describing intelligence okay, from a friendly government about a threatened hijacking in the U.S. by the bin Laden network. So at least that early we knew um, through some official source that um, it was possible through a hijacking that bin Laden was going to attack our country. On the same day, Clark convened a meeting to discuss uh, both hijacking concerns and and missile threats to the U.S. The CIA had distributed versions of this report to the FBI, to the FAA, and to the New York Police Department. Uh, the source of the information about the hijacking um, and also about missile threats um, remains somewhat of a mystery. I mean, the ultimate source of that. December 18, 1998, the CIA reported that bin Laden might be traveling to Kandahar so we knew about his location there and and, um, could be targeted with cruise missiles if we decided to do that. December um, 20, 1998, intelligence indicated um, that bin Laden would be spending the night um, at a particular home that was part of a governor's residence in Kandahar. Um, We had recommendations that um, we considered hitting him there but we decided not to go forward there was There were some lower level officials that were angry, but um part of the reticence in going forward was that innocent bystanders would be hit and there would be damage to a nearby mosque december twenty first nineteen ninety eight um, our government considered a roadside ambush um using tribals um, and they didn't want result in the death of bin Laden but his capture. Then they changed the plan to capture or kill december twenty fourth nineteen ninety eight um, Clinton had approval of congressional leaders um he had he had them um, briefed he he approved the plan to do that um, It was highly sensitive there were only a few people who knew about it and because under the law of armed conflict, killing a person who um, posed an imminent threat by the u s um would be an act of self-defense and not an assassination. But there had to be agreement by everyone who had to be briefed, and it had to be considered to be a a prudent plan, I think, before the government wanted to go forward. In the end, um, that action didn't go forward. I think by the end of the day, okay, we had our best clear chance, um, after we considered a number of other plans, say, in February of of, of, of 1999, the Northern Alliance... um, in afghanistan was also- advised that um we were trying to um trying to ambush bin Laden or capture him, but there was um ambiguity concerning whether or not um, to kill or capture him. The tribals had staged um no attack in nineteen ninety nine but remained um active collectors of intelligence in the end none of these efforts came to um it came to anything um so basically after after um 1999, even though various plans were considered to um, capture um, capture bin Laden, um, we didn't end up going ahead. In Kandahar, May, in Kandahar in May 1999, that was the best and last opportunity, I think, for targeting bin Laden with a cruise missile, before the nine eleven. There was very detailed information on his location in and around Kandahar over the course of about five days and nights. Strikes weren't ordered because um, the military doubted the intelligence and uh, was worried about collateral damage. Decision not to strike is difficult to understand. Um, George Tennant didn't want it. Um, the Pentagon had been willing to act. Um, Tennant was worried about the uh, operation of the intelligence. There was a lot of criticism our government would have, um, could have gotten if there had been um, a botched job but in any case, um, from May of 1999 to September of 2001, policymakers did not again actively consider a missile strike um, against Bin Laden, and didn't again have the kind of opportunity they had in Kandahar in May of 1999. So that about sums um, sums up our efforts to um, our efforts to um, get to get to Bin Laden. I mean, we just didn't have any great chances after um, Kandahar in May of 1999. It might be a good time now to um, switch gears since we've tracked um, tracked our efforts to um, find bin Laden and capture him. Now to talk about our own government. And some of this in earlier shows we may have um, mentioned some, but we're going to start with the state of, we're going to start with the FBI, in its efforts, how it was organized um, between 1998 and 1990. What were our U- U.S. efforts um, to deal with the emerging terrorist threat in general, okay, not particularly or necessarily linked just to al-Qaeda. Um, in 1993, of course, there was the World Trade Center truck bomb. Rami Youssef, who was a Sunni terrorist um, and extremist, planted that bomb. He had claimed political asylum and had been admitted to the United States, but um, this this bomb was um, buried under in an underground garage and it made a hole seven stories up six died in the World Trade Center. a thousand people were injured. The Counterterrorist center at the CIA um, combed its files and you know queried sources around the world. The National security agency um, which which collects, um, collects signals, uh, ramped up its communication intercept network and searched its databases. And the New York FBI field office um, swung into action, too, when this happened to try to find out who is it, who is it responsible. The FBI had tracked down um, the culprits from a truck fragment that had been part of a rider rental ban that had been re- reported stolen. So they identified um, as persons involved, uh, Mohammed Salome, Nidl um uh, Mahmoud, Abu Hulima, and Ahmed Ajaj, um, who, had arre- who had been arrested in the airport with false documents, um, Rami Yusuf fled to Pakistan after that bombing, and he remained at large for about two years. In any case, the arrests of um, of the other men that I've mentioned led to um, the Farouk Mosque in Brooklyn and Sheikh um, and Sheikh Omar. Abdel Rahman, another extremist Sunni Muslim cleric from, from Egypt, yeah. the Blind Sheik, we've mentioned him before. He had been a fan, like bin Laden, of Saeed um work, characterizing the U.S. as an oppressor of Muslims worldwide and asserting that it was their religious duty to fight against um, God's enemies. In um, June of 1993, um, the FBI arrested Rahman, and, and various confederates, in connection with something called the landmarks plot um again, a plot to um target various um various monuments in the u s and various uh, various places in the u s the u s attorney for for the Southern District of New York had successfully prosecuted multiple um, um multiple people for crimes relating to the world Trade center bombing and other plots. Um, The 9-11 Commission came to the conclusion that the success in those prosecutions led to an illusion that we were effective against um, these new terrorist threats. No one really went deeper to figure out whether um, investigative and prosecutorial efforts were enough um, to protect the United States. The evidence showed um, that the plot against the um, World Trade Center had been hatched at the Calden camp, a terrorist training camp um, on the Afghanistan and Pakistan border. Yusef, um, who had planned it, was captured in January of 1995 in the Philippines when police there discovered the Manila air plot. And I think I've mentioned that times before. There had been a um, a plot um, that was that was Al Qaeda launched and, and Al Qaeda um, connected that was involved the hijacking of a number of planes in the in the Pacific. But Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, um, Yusef's uncle, was a was a fellow plotter of Yusuf in this and um, had also wired him money before the Trade Center bombing. So we think he was involved with that. The law enforcement process, though, is not really designed, as the 9-11 Commission report observed, to determine um, whether events um, that have occurred previously could be a harbinger of things to come. I mean, it's really designed toward um, things that have already happened and bringing people to account. The FBI prior to 9-11 had been organized in 56 largely independent field offices. There was a special agent in charge of each office, and it, uh, that special agent would set the office priorities and would assign personnel according to um, you know the regional agenda for that center. There was too much focus in the opinion of the 9-11 Commission on quantifiable results. That's still a problem, um, you know, from my immigration practice, when I have um, represented people in removal proceedings, um, this focus on uh, government agencies, on quantifiable results, really has a tendency to mess up priorities. The priority, for example, of Immigration and Customs Enforcement um, is the number of removals that they get. So they wave their flag to the public and claim to be doing their job based on the number of removals they achieve. They don't really um, – no one really looks at the quality of the removals. Um, I think that the that, that I sort of waves its flag and, and says it's doing its job and goes after sometimes very easy targets, and not across the board. I do a lot of work with um, you know, drug smuggling, things of that character, but there's too much focus on quantifiable results, which means that um you know, if someone's removable, they're going to to use that as part of their um as part of their tally. And whether or not the person is a real threat to the United States or what other priorities might be set for removal, um, whether the priorities are really being met, I'm not so sure sometimes is, is actually getting enough attention. But um, in the FBI, too, there was a focus on the number of arrests, the number of indictments, number of prosecutions, the number of convictions. Um, lengthy intelligence investigations that might not produce um, such quantitative results, but that could um, produce uh, greater greater results in terms of information and analysis um, were not career-enhancing, and so they weren't encouraged at the FBI. And as I said, that's still a, uh, a problem in some of the government agencies. In any case, in the FBI, there was usually a single officer charge of a single entire investigation. Now, that obviously um, limits your, your capacity for checking uh, or double-checking um, and things of that character. J. Edgar Edgar, um, Hoover had added to the FBI's agenda the investigation of possible espionage, sabotage, um, subversion um, at various field offices. Now, the FBI in the 1960s had received significant assistance domestically from the CIA and Army intelligence. Um, There had been encouragement for the FBI to be a domestic intelligence agency, but that ended in the 1970s. The investigation of Watergate had expanded into a general investigation of foreign and domestic intelligence by the Church and Pike Committees. In 1976, Attorney General S.B. had adopted domestic security guidelines to regulate intelligence collection in the U.S. and deflect calls for stronger regulation. French Smith loosened the rules in 1983 for the sake of making terrorist acts easier to investigate, but um, he took account of the reality that suspicions of suburban terrorism could lead to targeting individuals because of their beliefs and not their acts. Also, there was um, potential terrorists often are members of extremist religious organizations, and investigations of terror could cross lines there. In 1986, the FBI authorized the investigation of terror attacks against Americans outside the U.S. and to make arrests abroad without consent from the host country. The Counterterrorist Center, by 1986, um, was endorsed in concept, and it was envisioned that the FBI, the CIA, and other organizations would work in concert on um, internal internal agendas. The FBI brought strength to counterterrorism. They were very active in um, discerning what had happened to Pan Am Flight 103. It was that London to New York flight that blew up over Lockerbie, Scotland, in December of 1988, killing about 270 people at first our government thought that Syrian Syria and Iran had sponsored that but it turned out to be Libya and the FBI um was instrumental in helping figure this out um it was a fragment um that was part of a timing device that um was unique to Libya so they were able to trace they were able to trace the um, um bombing of the Lockerbie bombing to to Libya that way so the FBI had some successes, and uh, but wasn't really organized in in a way with these regional centers to focus on uh, to focus exclusively on terrorism. In 1993, Clinton appointed um, Lewis Feach as the director of the FBI. He stayed until June of 2001. He believed that work should be done by field offices um, mainly, and he um, cut his headquarters staff, and decentralized operations. Okay, so there was a decentralization going on in the FBI in the early 1990s. He recognized terrorism as a major threat. However, and after the 1993 World Trade Center bombing, he told Congress in his budget request that the FBI should thwart terrorism um, before, um, should should thwart and find terrorism and search for terrorists before terrorists acts to be perpetrated. Within headquarters, he established the counterterrorism division that um, would complement the counterterrorist center at the CIA, and he arranged for exchanges of senior FBI and CIA officials. Speech's efforts um, resulted in no shift of resources to the counterterrorism center by Congress. Speech didn't impose his own views on the field offices. So while he had a belief that um, counterterrorism should be a priority, he didn't impose his own views on the field office. He had officers. Um, he left it still to them to set priorities for the region. Nick, I have to make sure I haven't lost you there.
0: Don, I'm still here. Um, Let me know when you want to pause for it. I mean, there's so much information. I'm just quietly learning. Um, I do have an event announcement to read. Um, If you'd like, we can pause for that now.
1: Well, why, why don't I let you do that? Because I know that you usually like to take a break or two, and then we can continue.
0: No problem, no problem. All right, well, to take a pause from learning from from Donna here, I want to tell you about uh, an event that's going to be coming up at John Marshall Law School tomorrow, December Wednesday, December 14th from noon to 1 o'clock, entitled Get More Clients and Grow Your Practice. It is the launch presentation to the Young Alumni Council at the John Marshall Law School, who's going to be sponsored and presented by uh, yours truly, Nick Augustine from ProServe PR, and Jim Thompson from Midwest Consult. Group. Well, what are we launching? You may ask. Well, welcome to the Get, it's Get More Clients and Grow Your Practice launch. And uh, Jim and I are going to share key concepts that all attorneys should adopt when they want to build their client and referral bases. Books of business are built over a career, and the seeds that you plant today can produce fruit anytime. time. Now next month or five years down the road. So just like investing in your future, investing in your book of business today will help you retire on your terms in the future. So you ask, who's this for? Well, it's for current law students, recent alumni, and solo practitioners who are particularly suited for this presentation. Uh, There's also the following 12-month course series covering business development. The tools that you need come from marketing, copywriting, public relations, and advertising, and anyone who needs to attract clients should know or have access to these skill sets and best practices. Um, What's in it for you? Well, awareness of the value of business development practice is uh, certainly a Good knowledge to have. So picture that someday you'll be a managing partner of a large law firm and maybe you need to hire a business development marketing professional. You'd sure be happy to have some notes on the basics of law firm business development. So that is what we are presenting uh, tomorrow noon, uh, Wednesday, December 14th, uh, at the John Marshall Law School, presenting again to the Young Alumni Council. If you want more information about the uh, 12-session online course that we are uh, launching with this, again, that's going to be starting in January 2012, uh, you can get in touch with me, Nick Augustine, at Nick at com, or get in touch with Jim Thompson. Jim is uh, at JET at MidwestConsultants.net. You can also find uh, find a copy of this on the ProServePR.com. Page on Facebook. If you just search for ProServe Public Relations on Facebook, you'll find a, a link to more materials about this. So, again, it's going to be uh, Wednesday, December fourteenth, noon to one o'clock. Presented to the Young Alumni Council of John Marshall Law School. All right. Now back to Donna Adler. Um, but before we go back to Donna, we want to also remind you if you do have any suggestions for content on either our Law Talk radio show or the Money Talk radio show, which airs on Thursdays, drop us a line on one of the Facebook pages or go to ProServe PR and you can send us a message through the contact page. Um, It's just a quick uh, fill out the form and let us know if you have either an idea for a show topic, you have a guest to suggest for a show, or you're interested in uh, sponsoring one of the shows. So do be in touch. All right, Donna, back to uh, our governmental knowledge and activity.
1: Okay, great. Great. We're gonna yeah, as I said, we're going to finish up today with um, talking about the state of our our government agencies' preparedness for a new kind of threat after the Cold War, this terrorist threat. And um, at, at that juncture, at the end of this show, um, I think regardless of how far we get with this, we'll we'll get through most of it. Um, we will then on the next show discuss the the 9/11 report recommendations, identifying them, and also in light of what we've been going through um, in the last several shows. Um, from the 9-11 mission report, trying to assess those in advance, whether whether we agree with those recommendations or not. Most of them are general enough that um, I think that most people would find them sensible, but exactly what they meant and how they would be to be implemented might be topics of interesting discussion. And then in the show's following, we'll um, actually get to the fun part of this series. It's all been fun, but I mean the um, creative part of this series. We've been doing our um, summary Uh, just looking at the laws and analyzing what they mean and and, um, what the ramifications and implications of the the laws that have been passed are. But getting back to the 9-11 Commission Report findings and summary, in uh, 1998 uh, the FBI, and remember this is about the same time, remember December 1998 there was the... um, Um, indication that uh, al-Qaeda might be planning to hijack planes in the U.S. Okay, so that that report was coming out. At about the same time, the FBI developed a five-year strategic plan. um, At the impetus of Deputy Director Robert Bear Bryant, Um, for the first time, um, the FBI designated national and economic security, including counterterrorism, as its top priority. That plan didn't succeed. It called for a national automated system to facilitate information collection um, and information information collection and analysis dissemination. It um, was supposed to create a professional intelligence uh, work group of experienced and trained people, agents in analysis. And if, if it had been successful, it would have been a major step Toward um, resolving addressing um, terrorism in a systematic way and not on a case by case individual basis where the cases were unrelated with one another. Um, but as noted, um, the plan didn't succeed. It couldn't get the re- it couldn't get the human resources because even though the F- FBI um, top priority had changed at the national level, again there was the field office organization where the field officers in charge of the various offices set the agendas. Um, the H.R. was not then shifted to match the national and economic um, um, security as a, ta- as a top priority. The new division that was, was uh, cre- being created by this strategic plan was supposed to identify trends in terrorist activity. It was supposed to determine what the FBI didn't know, and it was ultimately supposed to be in charge of information collection efforts. The FBI... Um, had little real appreciation for the role analysis it preferred um, just supporting its existing cases so again um this was part of the fact that um since quantitative measures were used to to um indicate success numbers of convictions et etc et etc okay any time spent in analysis was not something that could enhance someone's career and therefore it didn't get um it didn't get um wasn't met with much enthusiasm. There was another problem um, with with the plan. Another reason it didn't work from the analysis perspective. The uh, FBI tended to hire analysts from within the organization instead of recruiting very talented people from outside that had substantial um, education, training, and expertise in, um, in 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 analysis of data of the, of the kind needed. There was resistance from senior managers. Um, there was a poor state of the FBI's information systems. Access depended to a large degree on the personal relationships that analysts had with um, individual operational units um, where the information um, was located. Prior to 9-11, there weren't many strategic and analytic reports about – there weren't very many strategic and analytical reports about, um, about, you know, counterterrorism within – generally accessible within within the FBI from office to office. There wasn't a lot of intelligence uh, intelligent um that was effective. It was limited, again, from the human resources angle, and there was an adequate training among the agents. Three out of 16 days alone of training were devoted to counterintelligence and counterterrorism uh, for FBI agents. Most subsequent training was on the job. So when you had agents coming in, they had three out of 16 days of training on on counterterrorism, and that was it. And then they got their on-the-job training. uh, Then they got on-the-job training. In 1999, the FBI um, created a separate counterterrorism and counterintelligence division. So there were two two different divisions. Dale Watson urged um, an increase of the FBI counterterrorism capability. He wanted to bring to the Bureau... Um, a huge capacity uh, to detect counterterrorism, to detect terrorism threats by 2005. So he had an agenda whereby he wanted um, a very effective team by 2005. But there weren't enough at the field offices, there weren't enough um, analysts, there weren't enough lists, and there weren't enough technically trained experts. Now, there were different tools for law enforcement and intelligence. And this this comes into the picture too, at least um, in the opinion of the 9/11 Commission. First, in um, criminal matters, you can apply for a criminal warrant. In intelligence matters, um, the government needed to get or FBI needed to get a FISA application. Uh, FISA FISA is the federal was the federal intelligence um, surveillance um, f- court. Okay, so there was there was a secret court where. To uh, conduct surveillance, the, um, the FBI had to go and get a warrant, um, a special kind of warrant. In in criminal matters, you could apply for a criminal warrant, but there had to be a wall between these two things, and there was no procedure for information sharing. And the reason that there was a wall between these two things was so that the constitutional rights could be protected, so that you couldn't use um, what you got on the intelligence side of things through a FISA court warrant. Um, you couldn't use that um, as as an evidentiary basis in criminal matters in, in all cases. Okay, so there was a very fine line that had to be preserved there to protect people's constitutional rights in criminal matters. So there were no procedures for information sharing, um, and that was that was a possible problem. Okay, or it was perceived by the 9-11 Commission um, that, that that created a problem uh, with respect to um, counterterrorism in the U.S. In July of 1995, the um, Attorney General Janet Reno issued some formal procedures uh, to manage information sharing involved in full investigations and um, people involved in intelligence investigations. Uh, Nick, I had heard a blip on the line. Are you still with me?
0: I'm still right here.
1: Okay. Then I will then I will continue. Okay, so uh, the formal procedures, though, were misunderstood and misapplied. There was less information sharing than was actually possible under the departmental procedures, and as I said, there was just um, there was just a wall. Um, the DOJ insisted that it could not um, regulate the flow of information. It could not regulate the flow of information to criminal prosecutors, and therefore it would no longer present um, FBI warrant requests to the FISA court in 1995 uh, procedures dealt only with the FBI and criminal prosecutors and not um and not and not um information that was being shared by um two kinds of FBI um agents okay so the the procedures dealt with um um with with communications between the FBI itself and criminal prosecutors, not not between FBI agents who dealt on the one side, okay, with criminal matters and the other with um, counterterrorism efforts, a lot of people just assumed, um, to be on the safe side, that um, they simply couldn't share information. And because of, of that assumption, no one, to, no one wanted to cross the line, and cross the line that was defined, I think, by constitutional uh, boundaries in criminal matters. No one wanted to be accused of crossing the line, and so there was just less information sharing than there was than, than um, there could have been and maybe should have been. Now, what was going on in other law enforcement agencies? Well, the Department of Justice had the U.S. Marshals Service, and that was about 4,000 um, strong on 9-11 this This service was expert in tracking fugitives um with and and had much local police knowledge, okay, so it was pretty smart on the ground. The drug enforcement agency had as of two thousand one more than forty five hundred agents these um these agencies could have been used more effectively or these um these Personnel could have been used more effectively, probably, um, as resources for the FBI and CIA in counterterrorism use. The INA, the Immigration Naturalization um, Agency, had 9,000 Border Patrol agents, had 4,500 inspectors, and 2,000 immigration special agents this probably had the greatest potential for developing into an an expanded role in counterterrorism. And as I've said before um, on this show, the um, immigration naturalization um, was perhaps one of the weakest links, along with the FAA, FAA, um, that we had on 9-11. In 1993, um, the INS, despite its potential, had formidable challenges um, posed by illegal entry over the southwest border um criminal aliens it had a backlog in um applications for naturalizing immigrants it had outdated technology and it had insufficient um human resources um in some in some areas in these in in these places where it had backlog so it was just devoting its energies to um to other areas. We still have a problem in um the agencies that have have um superseded have Um, INS was, of course, disbanded, and then the the government reorganized, and we had USCIS taking over part of those functions, and we still have um, backlogs um, in that agency with respect to um, some of these issues. There's still a problem posed by illegal entry over the southwest border, and we still have a number of other issues, um, especially human trafficking. Um, These are serious criminal matters and and things of that that ilk um, with which... um, you know, USCIS is uh, in, involved to the extent of uh, approving or disapproving um, applications. In any case, 1993, Doris Meisner um, worked on automating um, a suspected terrorist watch list that was used by the State Department's Consular Affairs Bureau. It had immigration law expertise and authority, the INS, um, that other agencies could have used. The FBI possessed classified information. Sometimes it was needed as evidence, and um, information sharing um, could, have, could, have, um, could have succeeded if those two agencies had worked together better. But there were a lot of conflicts um, in the sharing of information. We had new immigration laws in 1996, which authorized the use of classified evidence and removal proceedings. Now, mid-level INS employees proposed a comprehensive counterterrorism proposals to the management of the INS in three years, 1986, 1995, 1997, but there was no action taken on these. The National Security Unit that was set up to handle alerts to track potential terrorist cases for possible immigration enforcement action and um, to work with the rest of the DOJ um, was was already in place by then but this national security unit focused on the fbi's priorities um, of hezbollah and hamas which was not a which was not a counterintuitive place to start it began to examine how the immigration laws um, could be used to combat terrorism it unsuccessfully sought to require uh, cia security checks be completed before applications were approved now I think that that might have been a really good okay an effective idea that we had not only FBI clearance but it would have been um it would have been very good and effective I think if the um if CIA security checks had had to be completed um sometimes um and, I, and I've noted even in my own um um what I know from, from my own practice that we have, you know, some council posts through whom people have come even after nine eleven where you're wondering how people um got into the US, even if they weren't dangerous themselves, um some of the links they have um might be dangerous. But if there were a CIA security check um before people's applications to be could be um uh, approved we'd have an extra layer of protection. There'd be a lot of resistance against this though, for a lot of reasons. Um we already have uh, backlogs with security checks, and um, maybe that would be too cumbersome really to implement, but it's a good idea, I think, in concept at least to discuss. But there were policy questions um, back in uh, the 1990s that were addressed. Um, whether resident alien status, for example, should be revoked upon conviction of a, a terrorist crime. One would think that would be a straightforward question, but um, it wasn't. In 1999, Customs and Border Patrol um, on the Southwest border. Um, we had we had one agent every quarter mile. They rejected efforts um, to bring additional resources to bear. Um, in the North, in spite of examples of terrorists entering from Canada, I think simply because they felt that um, many of their resources were needed on the southwest border. But we had, uh, in 1999, some awareness of terrorist activity in Canada, and an inspector general report re- recommending that Customs and border, uh, the Customs and Border Patrol develop a northern border strategy as well as a southern border strategy. Inspectors at our ports of entry were not asked to focus on terrorism in the 1990s. The INS, um, the INS initiated but um, did not bring to completion a system that would have tracked foreign students' visa compliance and as we've seen earlier in this series, this was a big this was a big hole. Uh, we had several of terrorists come over on visas. We had several people apply for for student visas. They would go back and forth, and then um, their, their travel wasn't checked. Um, they never got never got caught in time to prevent their participation in the 9/11 plot. And um, that this was that was this was a huge vulnerability: the inability to track people leaving, um, just coming back and forth. The INS, the INS was able to enter, since 1996, into agreements um, with state and local law enforcement authorities through which, um, through which, um, through which they could have worked to track terrorists. Um, they would have provided training to those local law enforcement agencies, and um, could have helped, could have encouraged them to exercise immigration enforcement authority. That would have led to resistance because it's it has led to resistance in recent years okay since um when I say recent years since um nine eleven occurred um, local police and um state police don't like to get involved okay as a general rule in immigration enforcement because when they they have their own sets of priorities when they're investigating crimes, they find that if um they are also supposed to be actively um tracking who's who um in terms of documentation, they lose their cooperation from the community when they're investigating crime, so there's a conflict there in in trying to gather you know local local police and state police in um federal efforts the treasury department treasury department resources um the nine eleven commission concluded had were not being utilized in the nineteen nineties um There was the Secret Service, the Customs Service, which worked um, alongside the INS uh, and sometimes cooperated with it, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms. In 1999 to um, um, 2000, the Customs Service, for example, had caught a terrorist who was planning to bomb um, LAX. So those were underutilized resources in the Treasury Department. We had a lot of agents then, various agencies that that um, could have worked together and cooperated to um, identify terrorist threats, but we weren't using our resources to our best advantage. About the FAA, I have said before that the FAA is uh, the FAA was um, a little bit of a um, not a little bit, but a lot of a a point of vulnerability. They were focused um, on non-suicide sabotage and and bombs, okay, not on hijacking. They really didn't think that um, a serious threat to the United States could come from within through hijacked planes. They had a layered system of defense. that wasn't directed to hijacking. So the FAA wasn't really prepared at all um, to meet the the kind of threat we saw emerge on 9/11, and I think the um, facts on that day that we've gone through in in copious detail bear that out. They simply weren't prepared for that kind of um, for that kind of attack. They weren't ready for it. They weren't organized to deal with it. They weren't quick at getting information from um, from the ground to the top of the FAA where decisions needed to be made, and um, they were they were a very uh, weak spot in our system. Now, in 1998, with respect to the, uh, to the FAA, the FBI made some efforts to assess the potential use of um, flight training by terrorists, and they would have coordinated with the with the FAA on this. Um, the FAA's no-fly list was appallingly sparse. Okay, even though the government watch lists um, in the State Department list had the name of many thousands of known suspected terrorists. Um, they they weren't even aware, in fact, in 1998, the FAA, of the State Department's tip-off list. That I find um, very difficult to understand. I would think that um, the FAA would be aware of those kinds of resources. Let me see if I can short-circuit this just a little bit. We had some other elements of of um of our intelligence okay services that could have been been used what did we have together what were our other elements of- intelligence besides the f b i uh, the f b i domestically and the c i a um internationally and what exactly did we have in um you know in the f b i Well, we had the national, we had the national security portion of the FBI. We had a Bureau of Intelligence and Research in the State Department. Um, We had the intelligence component of the Treasury. There was an Energy Department Office of Intelligence, um, a Coastal, uh, Coastal Intelligence, um, Coast, and Counterintelligence, rather, Energy Department Office of Intelligence and Counterintelligence, and they had special competence in nuclear weapons. We had an Office of Intelligence for the Coast Guard. There was a Directorate of Intelligence Analysis and infrastructure protection um, as well. In the National Security Agency, uh, we had technical systems um, that could break into and listen to the conversations between foreigners. Um, the they was supposed to um, let the FBI know of any indication of crime, espionage, or um, other such things that they became aware of so that the FBI could get um, and apply for warrants to investigate. We had within our military services each of the our, each of our military services have their own intelligence components. So, in by by two thousand in, in two thousand one we had many different components of our government with intelligence branches, and they would each have been competent in um, in some specialized areas, and would certainly have been able to benefit one another in um, counterterrorism efforts if they had all been um, if they had all been organized to cooperate with one another. Some of our legislation since 9/11 has been geared toward fostering that kind of intergovernmental um, cooperation among intelligence agencies, but some of it may go. Some of it may be, be too much of a blunt instrument. And when we talk about particular pieces of legislation, we're going to um, see exactly how those capacities have been brought together and whether that's really um, whether that really is effective for the job. Whether it um, is too all encom- whether it's too encompassing or whether we re- really need the kind of cooperation that is um specified by the um acts that we've passed or uh, whether there can be some um safer compromise with civil liberties than um the organization in those capacities so we had a number of different um agencies that could could have um could have cooperated i think mainly and what we need to keep in mind about um, the state of our government is that all of our agencies were still um, organized. Um, we're coming out of an organization in the 1990s. They had been organized for a Cold War kind of threat, the kind of, of threat our, com- you know, our government worked with since the end of World War II. And then when the Cold War ended, um, The entire decade of the 1990s, there were 10 years there where um, people had to become aware, first they had to think in that the Cold War had ended. And we should have been in those early years after the Cold War ended really thinking about the implications of um, what that meant. I I may have mentioned this before. Okay, with um, the Cold War ending, um, it should have been immediately apparent, I think, to anybody that Um, there would be a black market in nuclear arms to to deal with. And I'm sure there must have been people in the government thinking about that. But we didn't organize immediately around um, that kind of problem. And we didn't really think of terrorists um, acting on their own in networks. We um, thought of them still as associated with states because that was our mentality. It was states that you had to fear. Uh, States were a threat. People sponsored by states were a threat were threats um not real we weren 't geared toward thinking about independent non governmental works that were crossed um international that cross national boundaries that would themselves become um, could, could, them, could themselves have the capacity basically to declare war on nations that 's basically what we had nine eleven with al qaeda it was a an international group that was well financed um very well structured and that it had its um um, had its experts had its um finances in place, had its operatives, and they could as effectively attack a sovereign nation as um, um as any sovereign nation could another uh more effectively because they could infiltrate so we weren't organized at all to deal with that kind of um with that kind of problem um and in the whole decade of the nineteen nineties, as our government came out of the cold war mentality, we weren't shifting gears quickly enough to um, a different kind of world, and that's basically I think why um why we saw um on nine eleven what we saw um we were just caught with our pants down, so to speak um and I think that's where I'd like to end um with this analysis of where our government agencies were their um, their antenna just weren't up fast enough um and if they were up fast enough in some quarters we didn't do we didn't do enough to pay attention to those signals.
0: Right, Donna, I agree with you that, um, and I really appreciate that you brought forth um, some of the comments about our our prior knowledge or our prior experience being that threats were coming through states and not through individual groups, and, and I agree that I didn't think about a black market nuclear arms at the time either. So many of our intergovernmental cooperations could have happened and didn't happen, um, and now I guess as we turn into the next show number seven on the recommendations of the nine eleven Commission report, we'll start to examine a little bit about the different approaches to solving some of the problems that we recognize and uh recognizing those problems as Donna has taken us through the through the show. So um I think that to to just to summarize where we've been through and to get to this point, uh we the first few shows that we did actually took uh, better part of two, maybe into the third show we talked about all the all the actions that happened and took place in the timelines of the morning of September eleventh and then have been going through our show, continuing in our series, talking about intelligence, who knew what, how some of the operatives in Al Qaeda were able to get into this country, different resources, things that were happening from a historical context. So um If you'd like to find more of those shows, you can, again, go back to the Law Talk Radio page on Facebook or go to uh, the actual Law Talk Radio show site on Blog Talk Radio com where you can find all of our archives and you can scroll back and find the other previous shows. Uh, again, a very uh, important thing, uh, just this came up during Thanksgiving. People were mentioning to me uh, that there are new reports of Al-Qaeda uh, mobilizing in Mexico and Canada. And Donna, did you hear about everything with the tunnel? Did you hear anything about that?
1: I did hear something about that. Um, I just want to say a couple uh, a couple sure. a couple words as we close the show up in terms of the method to our madness, and then I'm talking about sort of Al Qaeda in Mexico um, or the possibilities there, because people don't um, I think sometimes connect the dots. But um, mm-hmm. I we did spend the first couple shows analyzing 9/11 and what happened in the timelines in excruciating detail, and there was a, a, a real point to that. The point is, let's not forget. Um, that day, let's not forget what went wrong that day, because I think that we're going to come back again and again to that. Um, as I tried to point out um, during those shows, there was a lot that, if it had been in place that day, just very discreet, focused systems, okay, that would have prevented from happening okay that, that we if certain capacities had been in place if we had been a little bit more on our feet then we might have been able to avert the entire thing okay and my point there is we need to rethink whether the reorganization of our whole government was necessary okay to prevent what happened that day my my inclination is to say is to say no but i say that with great humility okay only then Okay, because we're following the order, of the nine eleven nine eleven commission report. Um, we went on to to talk about well, what did we actually know? Okay, about Bin Laden, what did we actually know about the uh, about Al Qaeda? And I I tracked the report very closely because I know many people haven't read the 9-11 commission report. So uh, we've been in these in these several shows basically. Let's summarize what the what the report says. Still, the best source for the report is for people to read that report themselves. And I hope one thing that the the series of shows will have done up to now is to encourage people to go back and really educate themselves and review the 9-11 Commission report. Um, So after we, we analyzed that, we then went into, well, how was our government organized to deal with a new kind of threat? Not terribly well organized, but again, uh, to, to meet a new threat that wasn't a Cold War threat, all those things are true. I think the 9/11 Commission report says about our lack of preparedness. But I want to keep coming back to, in spite of all that, in spite of the fact that that was true, we can't forget what. Let's 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 focus and not forget to focus on what happened that day and ask ourselves some very focused questions on what specifically, if in place on that day, would have prevented this, or something similar. All right because we're going to go forward and we're going to analyze legislation that was passed and as armchair citizens we're going to take a serious look at has has there been some overkill um is there a serious threat are are we are we in fact um out of fear compromising or setting ourselves up for a compromise of our civil liberties that is too uh, that is too radical See, any compromise of civil liberties is is too radical it's the constitution that um, we stand for it's the constitution that makes this nation what it is and to compromise the constitution in in my view is not an option so whatever it is we're doing to protect ourselves, to better safeguard that form, that form of government. Now Al-Qaeda in Mexico. I think one thing, perhaps our most serious national security threat is on that southwest border. I'm not talking about Pablo crawling over the border who needs to feed his family and is desperate for work. That's not who I'm talking about. I'm talking about um, the, the transnational drug gangs. There are drug cartels, okay, and transnational drug groups that are involved in sex trafficking, weapons trafficking, drugs trafficking, and they're they're serious, uh, seriously criminal. They do horrible things to people. If you read anything about El Salvador or Honduras or Guatemala, um, these people cut people's heads off with regularity. They do horrible things to people. It's all about money. It's all about networks. It's only a matter of time before those networks start working with other kinds of bad actors and um and threaten the national uh, threaten the security of this nation those drug gangs already okay have infiltrated the united states and various of our big cities we need to think as people living in this country what we're doing what we're what we are doing here to create such a market for illegal drugs uh, we're setting ourselves up for disasters what we're doing um, I don't think it's anything but a matter of time before groups like al-Qaeda begin to prey on that kind of weakness. Um, we are our own worst enemy in terms of our, our own bad habits to the extent that we um, have transnational drug gangs who find this lucrative in the U.S., to find, find the U.S. lucrative market. Um, I wasn't surprised at all when the report came out about um, some um, gang from Mexico um, cooperating in the um cooperating um, in the plot to assassinate the Saudi ambassador. Okay, it doesn't surprise me in the least knowing what I know about um drug gangs and the possibilities of those kinds of networks. They're also organized themselves. Okay, so um I guess that's my comment on, on, on that stuff. But I think that we need to uh we need to take a serious look at that. We need to uh really look at that southwest border and uh, not not in fear of the people coming here to Help bring our harvest in, but um, in terms of other kinds
0: of oaks. Right, right. Very, very good points, and I thank you for making some of those comments, Donna. I agree that there's uh, a process of legal immigration that is a separ- very separable issue from protecting the security of our country and our borders. And I agree that too many people are a little bit uh, naive. I heard a lot of comments with when uh, Janet Napolitano came out with the reports and the body scanners in the airports, and a lot of people are upset about them. Um, but and not to comment on the you know what I think about the scanners, but a lot of the comments I heard from some of my friends were that well there hasn't been an attack in ten years. Well, I just because there hasn't happened in something in ten years. I mean let's look back to we're not long off of uh, December seventh, which the Pearl Harbor attacks. You know how, how do we know those were coming either? I mean there's just because they're, they're, it's history repeats itself. Um, you can have a lapse of time before uh, ter- horrible events, but that doesn't mean that something bad can't happen. And I think that we are too quick to forget. So, again, I want to thank Donna Adler for taking all of her so much of her time to go through and give us such a, a solid recitation of the facts and everything that happened uh, on that terrible day and up through and to go through this um, go through everything through the 9-11 commission reports. This is certainly uh, uh, an arduous task on all of our parts to examine. But comment i comment on
1: those body scanners.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure, um, go ahead.
1: I do, I do have an objection to those body scanners. Um, I, I, I have contempt. Okay, the idea that we all have to get naked, okay, for the um, for the airport security in order to in order to fly in this country, um, and those those um, tests aren't even themselves fail proof. This is what I'm talking about. It's kind of a craven mentality on the part of citizens that would that would allow themselves to be put through that kind of indignity. Um, to be persuaded that that's necessary for their security, if you're going to be, if you're going to do that, if you'll get naked at the airport, okay, I'm um, saying <laughs> those are get naked machines, all right. I'm sorry, okay. I have basically stopped flying, okay. It is a hard push for me. I mean, I, before I will fly anywhere because I have such an objection to having my privacy invaded in that way, and I do not think that kind of thing um, is necessary. If they wanted to. Um, Instead of create some kind of visual scan, okay, be a little bit more creative and talk, what they could, talk about what they could do with, with something audio. Maybe I wouldn't object so much, but I just think it's deplorable that our citizenry is put through this kind of, 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 of undignified treatment. If you would do that, what wouldn't you do, okay? What craven act wouldn't you commit to have your safety protected? That's exactly mm-hmm. the kind of thing I'm talking about. I'm
0: right, right, right. I feel very it's,
1: strong about body scans.
0: A lot of people do. And, um, yeah, you know, another topic and issue is that we have a difference between generations of those who, um, you know, a lot of the younger generations growing up now where everything's on social media and everything's an open book, the expectation of privacy is, uh, is not there with younger generations than but there are with – where is your with,
1: dignity? It's like where is your dignity, for God's sake? Okay, yeah, you, would, it was, you would spread your whole life everywhere.
0: It's a very different, uh, you know, different times, different people, different places. But I'll tell you what, history is so important, and if we are doomed to repeat, well, we don't catch. And that's something that I've learned over time. So I'm really glad that we're doing this series. There are a lot of issues. We've had a a good response to the show. Uh, Before I say goodbye, I want to let our audience again know about upcoming, uh, for those of you listening to the show live today, we thank you for your time and uh, want to remind you again about the event coming up tomorrow at John Marshall Law School. It's Get more clients and grow your practice. Again, we're launching the presentation uh, to the Young Alumni Council at the John Marshall Law School. This is the uh, the launch to promote the 12 month, uh, it's once a month two hours on Wednesdays. It's an online course. Uh, Jim Thompson and myself, Nick Augustine, are going to be teaching things on everything from uh, public relations, marketing, media relations, uh, good ad copywriting, and everything you need to know for business development. So Again, whether you are yourself doing that uh, at your law firm or you're in a position to hire someone to do that or otherwise uh, would benefit from that information, it's it's a really good program. Again, you can find things for that on our uh, ProServe Public Relations Facebook page. You'll also be seeing uh, things in in my different uh, social network channels about those uh, webinars coming up. Again, they're going to be webinars Wednesdays from 7 to 9, and you can uh, contact us for more information and to register. So, again, I also want to thank all of our uh, audience members out there who tune in and listen loyally. I want to also... uh, mentioned that we are thankful for the opportunity to bring you this radio program through the blog talk radio uh, program and channel Uh, it's a nice opportunity to bring everyone together and share some collective intelligence again this is nick augustine from law talk radio and as always i thank you all for your time